Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our watch through of The Magicians, and we're talking about Season 1, Episode 3, Consequences of Advanced Spellcasting. Chris, could you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? The first years at Breakbills test for their disciplines, with Alice, Katie, and Quentin placed with the physical kids, despite Quentin not actually getting a conclusive discipline of his own. He's a nothing man, sir. Penny is assigned to the psychic discipline, but after he teleports around the world, Fogg and Professor Sunderland tell him that he's actually a traveler, who has the ability to teleport anywhere, even between worlds. I want it. Give me it. Elliot asks Quentin to help him search for the book that Katie stole from Marina, which leads them to Marina's Hedgewitch safe house. There, Quentin confronts Julia, who's been struggling with balancing her personal life and learning magic. In their argument, Q warns her that the hedge magic is dangerous, accuses her of patronizing him throughout their friendship, and tells her she needs to grow up. I think you're the one who needs to grow up, Quentin. Meanwhile, Margot helps Alice find out what happened to Alice's brother Charlie, who's consumed by magic and turned into a niffin. Alice and Quentin research how to help Charlie. When they find him, he attacks them, and ultimately Quentin binds him, despite Alice's belief that she can get through to him. Devastated about what happened to her brother, Alice leaves Breakbills. Well, why don't we get into the episode? What are the magic moments that were standing out to you? Yeah, I had a few just kind of small, fun moments that I really enjoyed in this episode. One really cool one was seeing, once they got into the cottage, the magical drinking games that students were doing. <laughs> I know, you would love that. Absolutely, yeah. Like, having to read spells or manuscripts in different languages. And one thing that we definitely get a lot of in the books is how the students at Breakbills have to learn a ton of different languages in order to do magic in those languages. Yeah, I love that. And so with the college-like environment, yeah, it absolutely makes sense that they would make drinking games out of the kind of knowledge that they're all gaining. Mm -hmm. uh, it reminds me of, it wasn't a drinking game, but my history department in grad school had game nights and once I brought a kind of little game called Timeline where you have to put dates in order. So as historians, we had this game where we had to like come up with history solutions, essentially, um, which One was... One of the nerdiest games you can play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But because it was that shared kind of knowledge, it was, yeah, really enjoyable. So yeah, it just was a fun, fun little moment to see that. Yeah, and I, I love that bit about how many languages they have to learn and things because that's something that in comparison to Harry Potter, mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's incredibly lacking. It's all bad Latin. Well, th that, sure. But like, if there are magical communities all over the place, then there's going to be really important magic coming from all over the place and they're not all going to do it in Latin. Mm -hmm. And so you have... Alice mentions the Maori spell or the binding spell for the Niffin is a Turkish spell, you know, so it, it was just really cool to see here break bells. They are really, I mean, it seems like it probably is a very good educational experience mm -hmm. uh, and they're really pulling from magic all over the world, which is, yeah, which is great. Yeah. There are also a few moments with Quentin that I, I really appreciated I didn't love the joke about him trying to claim that he wasn't thinking about Taylor Swift in his head, 
but the way he interacts with Penny oh my God, so in that scene funny. is so great. And how he, like, at the end of it, slides around the tree yeah. as a way of trying to get out of it. But it's not like he's, like, leaving. Yeah. He left his bag there. Like, he's yeah. literally just trying to put the tree between him and Penny. And when Penny is walking away... You see him poking out from the other side, and he just looks like he's lurking now. Just the most awkward way to try to get out of that situation anyone can do, and it was hilarious. Yeah, very, very good. And then later on, when they're searching for the book, and they have its mate, and it's in a box that Quentin's holding, and the actor just has to, like, jerk around as if the box is moving in all these directions, he just does such a great job with the physical comedy of that. Yeah. Yeah, just really, really impressive. I also liked how when they got into the cottage, Quentin was really proud of Alice's phosphomancy. Mm-hmm. How he comes in and like that's what he's immediately bragging about. Yeah, I think that that's a, a really cool moment for their friendship. But then on the other hand, I, I also appreciated how at the end of the episode, Alice says F you to Quentin. Because in his point of view, he saved her from the Niffin by binding it. But for her, that meant that her brother was now bound when she still had the chance to save him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really good moment for Quentin to see how being the hero and saving people isn't simple. It's not just you do this thing and then you get rewarded for it. It's not these kinds of tropey narratives, but that your choices even if you're doing so in order to help someone, are not always going to be seen that way because other people have other perspectives and other priorities than you do. And yeah, I just thought that that was a really good moment for Quentin's narrative. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting moment because I think from that sort of perspective, like, oh, saving, being a hero, that sort of thing, definitely. But from the other side, it's like, it's not that he was just saving her. He was saving himself, too. Mm -hmm. Niffin Charlie almost killed him and would have if he hadn't been like, oh, look at this silly little spell she's trying, you know, and went over to mess with Alice. Like, he almost got murdered. (laughs) And if this Niffin is left around on campus that could kill tons of people, everyone, you know, so it's like... Yeah, absolutely. She was making it all about that he was saving her, but I don't know. It's hard to say if that was his full motivation, especially since he was almost murdered, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's more complicated than just that, but if that's part of how he would think about it later or whatever, then yeah, that would be annoying. (laughs) Totally. What about you? What are your magic moments? One of them was at the beginning when Julia is trying some of these new spells and stuff that she's learned. Mm -hmm. And she goes to the ATM and just like gets a bunch of money out. And I was just like, oh, jealousy. Like, (laughs) not just because of the money, but like, if if I had magic and could use it that way, I would just like be the Robin Hood, you know, just take a bunch of money from corrupt banks and uh, redistribute that wealth. And yeah. that would be amazing. Yeah, anti-capitalist magic is right? where it's at. Right? I was just like, oh, I want it. But it was just, yeah, so cool. And also just a great way to show how 
magic can affect people's actual lives, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in a day-to-day way, not just, ah, oh, this campus and this secluded environment, you're learning spells, but uh, how it could affect people's lives, but also you could be giving people the power to do corrupt things, right? Uh, uh, people who wouldn't be doing it to redistribute wealth, <laughs> uh, but for nefarious reasons, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also an example of how the hedge witches are subaltern, which is a term that's used by hoity-toity academics, but essentially means, <laughs> like, people who are on the margins of society, uh, but it's a way of kind of making it so that their identity isn't entirely based off of how they're treated by the powerful, but also by their choices. So instead of mm. it being they're marginalized, saying they're subaltern gives them a bit more agency. So yeah, here you see her having a different kind of morality. And the fact that this is just done in a montage, it's mm-hmm. not even a major plot point, shows also for her the banality of that new morality that it's not a huge new threshold that she's crossing over, mm. but it's just a new way for her to practice her magic. Yeah. And that's what's important. So, yeah, I, th- I think it was a very effective little scene. Yeah, absolutely. The other one that was really standing out to me on multiple levels is just Penny. Can we talk about oh. his outfits? Penny. Like, the costume design for him is just so great. He looks so fabulous in everything he's wearing. Mm -hmm. And every time he comes in, I'm like, I want to see what he's wearing this time. Like, he just, he looks so cool. And also, I think it's really great that he's the traveler. You know, this was the first show I really saw with south asian not not that we would call them superheroes but you know like having superhuman abilities Mm -hmm. and in this fantasy setting sure i'd read some books i'd you know but like really seeing that on screen is just such a great meaningful thing that you have one of the main characters yeah south asian has the coolest wardrobe and the coolest ability yeah and it's just like yes Absolutely. And for the maybe three listeners out there who also thought about Rakesh and Heroes, he does not count. Oh, okay. I haven't watched Heroes. Because he he takes a while to get powers at all, and when he does, they're like the worst powers. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not quite the same. Amazing character, but not as empowering. Yeah. And now there's things like Ms. Marvel, which sure, in the comic forms have been there for a while, but like just started being put to screen and stuff. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this came out in, what, 2015, I Something think? Like that, so yeah. a little earlier than other things that I've seen. I, I, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot that exists coming from South Asia, but not from the United States, unfortunately. Yeah. But what are we going to our next section, which is setting in society? What are you thinking about? Speaking of Penny, uh, I thought the psychic house was really interesting to see. Mm. And his reaction to it. Well, particularly his (laughs) eye rolls as soon as he comes in, that he can't even hear the ways they talk about these powers that he's had his whole life or for so long in his life. But I do find it really interesting how the house not only works on amplifying 
those psychic powers, but also controlling them and learning how to heal and process your emotions that come with being psychic. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really fascinating detail to include, that there was a infrastructure, because this is such an important part of the lives of psychics, Mm -hmm. that they realized they had to kind of systemically address it. And yeah, I just find that that really, really interesting and fascinating. And particularly with the journey that we've gone on already with with Penny and that will continue to go on. Just, yeah, a a really interesting moment because he is, he has put up so many walls Mm -hmm. and he doesn't want to be vulnerable. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he is constantly bombarded with the thoughts and emotions of others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he mentioned something about a cocktail of drugs that Mm -hmm. is what has helped him cope with his psychic abilities. And obviously that is not good for the body and not sustainable without significant potential harm, right? And so uh, it's, it's great that they have ways that they're trying to teach people who have these abilities, yeah, to cope with a bunch of the ramifications of being able to hear other people's thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, would be a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder how he's feeling now that he's not roommates with Quentin. You know, <laughs> if, if he has a psychic roommate, if they're all able to, like, close their minds, mm-hmm. you know? And so he doesn't have to be around the constant noise quite as much. But if he can... If he has abilities that he can hear much farther away, then it doesn't necessarily help with that. But Totally. Yeah. yeah. I also found that the fact that we're three episodes in and we already have a spell to locate dead spirits <laughs> just highlights, for one, the extent to which this show is just like, magic exists and you can do lots of things with it. Like, <laughs> yep. we're... Even though Quentin is coming in as a beginner, we're already seeing them do extraordinary things with this magic. In this case, something that, like, I think would be metaphysically altering. Like, this would completely alter cosmology if you could contact dead spirits. How do you think about death and life and the universe if you understand that dead spirits are not only present, but able to be contacted it's just i think such a uh, an interesting element to put into this world and not even to spend a lot of, a lot of time with mm-hmm. because this world is so full of these kinds of extraordinary things and be like well, what else do i not know mm-hmm. <laughs> but it also i think helps to explain some of alice's obsession with her brother that if she comes from magic family if this isn't a spell that is a surprise to her that it exists I can understand why you would be obsessed with finding out what happened to your brother if there's a possibility of contacting him or of other ways of engaging with the dead. Yeah, I just think that it's it's really, really powerful and we don't spend a lot of time with it. And I'm particularly interested in that as we explore this narrative, because what does that mean for the stakes of these characters? That if one dies, one can still be contacted or, you know, mm. there are other ways around the finality of death um, in this world, I think that, yeah, that that does something to to the world that you're building, to the narrative that you're crafting that I'm going to just keep an eye out for. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it also, I think, opens up 
a whole new avenue for ethical behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not just ethical behavior of what's happening here and now with people here and now, but what does it mean to have this obsession with her, her brother being dead and, oh, maybe I can find him, I can contact him, or maybe I can even bring him back Yeah. versus the health and safety of those around you. Mm -hmm. You know, like, how do you weigh these things when humans <laughs> without that already have a hard enough time prioritizing communities and their fellow people yeah. uh, over their own individualistic desires, so... Yeah, I, I could just imagine, <laughs> let's open Pandora's box of mm -hmm. all of the other things you can do because, yeah, you could have terrible people, <laughs> you know, want to bring back some of the most notorious people in, in the world, mm. you know, like you, you could have all sorts of really scary things. Absolutely. As well. But then me as a historian, I'm also like, who Ooh. could I interview? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to talk to you. I will not be bringing you back, but... What new primary sources do magicians have access to? Yeah. <laughs> All of the primary sources. That'd be really overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> but my last topic in this section is on their disciplines, mm -hmm. um, which we get introduced he to here. And I think it's interesting how their disciplines are told to them that the discipline is part of your identity as a magician, which is one of the reasons why Quentin's not having a discipline <laughs> is such a big issue. <laughs> but it also helps guide them onto their path forward as a magician, where they might go, how they might use their gifts, and so on. And so for me, this really highlighted my experience in grad school, where oftentimes you have to choose a specialization. You know, there's, there's even choosing a major in both undergrad and grad school. But even beyond that, you know, when I say I'm a historian, people are going to ask, what kind of historian, right? What's your specialization? And that can be broad generalizations, like I tend to teach American history, though I also teach some world history and some other, other subjects. But even within that, there's so many American historians out there that what is my specialization within that? Am I interested in cultural history or social history, or political history or legal history? Am I interested in modern history or pre-modern history, right? Mm -hmm. uh, am I interested in specific geographic areas? Like all of these can be really, really, you know, further defined so that I can ultimately say that my specialization is in early 20th century Los Angeles. But, you know, these things get, get, get complicated, but it also helps to influence the networks that you're a part of, the opportunities that you have where you can go and teach or study or research. Uh, you know, all of these things get very much tied into your discipline the more into academia you become. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how this is an issue for Quentin and for the others, but how it also comes with its own challenges uh, made most visceral by the, the challenge to get into the cottage. <laughs> and yeah, I just, I find it an, an interesting element of placing this in an academic setting in this first season and having it be a part of how they study, but having it be intrinsic to them rather than chosen. Mm -hmm. That it is based off of these tests that they do rather than based off of the kinds of magic they find most interesting or compelling or they have built the greatest skills at. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because when I was reading the books, there was a section that I found kind of amusing, which I'll, I'll read to you, and this is from the first book. After finals, all 20 members of the second year had been marched through the practical applications room one at a time to be assigned their disciplines. The sessions were scheduled at two-hour intervals, though sometimes it took longer. The entire process lasted three days. It was a circus atmosphere. Most of the students, and probably the faculty, were ambivalent about the whole idea of disciplines. They were socially divisive, the theory behind them was weak, and everybody ended up studying pretty much the same curriculum anyway, so what was the point? But it was traditional for every student to have one, so a discipline every student would have. I kind of smiled to myself when I read that because, first of all, with long-standing institutions you know there can be traditions and stuff like so i think in the uk in court lawyers and judges and stuff wear those stupid wigs <laughs> like it's just it's so much and there's there's no point for it mm-hmm. but tradition right and so i think that yeah oftentimes there can just be these traditional things that are kept because it's part of the culture of the institution. Also, I wonder if it's poking a little bit at Harry Potter mm. when it's like, these are divisive and the ideas behind them are weak and they're not like really that beneficial and everybody studies the same things anyway, so why does it matter? Uh, because, yeah, it's not necessarily helpful even though in our sorting chat episodes, it can be very fun to sort different characters into their Hogwarts houses or, you know, talk about that sort of stuff. But um, I think also at the same time, because this was undergraduate in In the the book, book, Mm -hmm. it does make a little more sense with that perspective. But even our undergraduate educations in the United States that aren't maybe quite as specialized as they are in some other countries, you still have your major and you still have sometimes a a concentration within that in addition to the general education courses that you have to do. Mm -hmm. But for graduate school, it is much less that way, right? And so in the show, I think that they probably are studying some different things based off of their disciplines because if you are a psychic, you have to know how to do things that physical students would never need to know how to do because they can't. So uh, I think it's very practical to have the disciplines if you're actually studying different curriculum. Do you have to live in different places? No, I don't, (laughs) I don't think that's necessary. And, and yeah, you could say that's divisive Mm -hmm. or, or or whatever. And I'm sure a a role to play is we'll we'll get to, it's not a spoiler, but Welters, it's like this Mm -hmm. game where different houses compete against each other. And so, yeah, then you start getting competition rather than collaboration, uh, which I think can not be helpful. But I've also never been involved in things like that (laughs) because I don't care. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting aspect and and a difference between the book and and the show. Totally. Yeah. And that that point about it being tradition is so accurate for academia, too, because (laughs) there continues to rage all these discussions about whether scholars in any specific field should be using the methodology of other fields or whether that 
waters down or lessens the integrity of their field. Do like, you use Chicago or MLA? I mean, there's that. <laughs> I mean, itself. you should only be using Chicago. I mean, Chicago sounds the best. But, uh, we didn't have degrees in history. Not that we're history majors or anything, no. but Chicago sounds the best. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these come from these very long debates and very structured histories of these departments having very specific identities and often being in competition with one another for resources, for scholars, for other kinds of things. And so the kind of rise of interdisciplinary programs and opportunities and scholarship, I think, is a good thing Absolutely. that is very much challenging the traditional kind of backbone of much of academia. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean... We're sort of on a tangent now just about things that we like, Us? but oh well. Uh, yeah, because part of what we love so much about history and studying history are also the sociological effects of that history and uh, of of the time we're studying and how those have ramifications for sociology now and, and things like that. And so people who are like only studying history for what exactly happened and they don't have any really understanding of some sociology, I think it can be a problem. It can, it can make arguments or their way of thinking about history not helpful, mm -hmm. you know, or very flat and not interconnected like history is. Yeah. So yeah, I love interdisciplinary things. The, the more of that, the better. Absolutely. I mean, here we are to people who studied history and similar subjects doing what accounts to kind of a media studies podcast, <laughs> you know, very interdisciplinary in that way. So yeah. 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 But what were your points for setting in society? A very short one I just wanted to mention that I appreciated that they had in there is that Dean Fogg had to move his office to the first floor mm. because he can no longer see, for the most part, he can see a little bit, kind of outlines with these special magical glasses, but he can't be taking the stairs. And, and I love that they had that in there, even if it was very small, because so often shows just completely ignore the real lived ramifications of of losing abilities and uh, i like how they didn't do that yeah another thing that i like too is that you know you have the the, the rosy setting of break bills but then you also see some of the problems and they throw some shade at break bells as well when they're talking about Emily Greenstreet and how she was set up with a job mm. after whatever went down and she left the magical world entirely. And because she was set up with a job, Margot says, which is how you know they're covering up something big, mm. which I just, yeah, I love that they're throwing shade at this institution that, yeah, they would do these this sort of things too. To save themselves, <laughs> they are uh, going to cover scandals up, cover tragedies up, cover things up where they could be liable. Or just embarrassed. I mean, embarrassed, certainly, but Alice and her parents, they don't know what happened to Charlie. Mm. If they did, could they sue the school? Or the professor who was involved in the relationship with a student and then the whole situation came about, you know, like it wasn't... Do you think that 
magical lawyers have to wear magic wigs? <laughs> I hope so. If they have to wear wigs, they should be magical. Agreed. And maybe they can change based off of how good they think the, the opposing lawyer's points were. Mm. It would be incredibly distracting, but very amusing. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, no, I, I just, yeah, I like that it shows that this institution is not above trying to cover their own butts, you know? Yeah, that they are powerful, and the powerful remain powerful by using that power for their own ends. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't give the family of the student closure. Mm-hmm. On some of it, you could argue, oh, it's for privacy for this other student who was the one who did the magic to herself and... You know, that could be argued, sure. There could be maybe something legitimate about that. But, yeah, it just it gets kind of shady. <laughs> yeah, totally. The other thing that I really wanted to talk about is elitism. Oh, yes. <laughs> we saw so much of that in basically the whole scene where Elliot and Quentin visit the Hedgewitch safe house. And I was a little like, "Mm," because I don't think that we actually had in the book Elliot showing that sort of elitism. Mm -hmm. He definitely likes fancy, spiffy things, but I I don't remember any dialogue from him that was kind of disparaging. Hedgewitches are people who do magic outside of break bills that much more came from quentin yeah and so i was a little like "Mm." but i get that they're showing an overall attitude right Mm -hmm. of people and even julia herself had phrased break bills as the yale of the magic world right and and you have these ivy league schools that are prestigious for whatever reasons, whether that's actually based on academics or completely not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If that's based on tradition, if that's based on money, if it's based on nepotism, (laughs) you know. All of the above. (laughs) Yes, I mean, not, not to say that they don't have some really high caliber professors teaching at these universities. I'm sure that they do, but there's also really high caliber teachers not teaching at Ivy Leagues, but they don't necessarily always have the same social clout in how people talk about them. Yeah. So in the show, Elliot used words like sad, desperate people, and he very flippantly love Elliot, but no Elliot mentions how one asked to blow him for a spell and how it was almost worth it or whatever. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, Elliot, not okay exploiting someone for their desire for education, knowledge, you know? So bad. And it's like, oh, that one's trying to do pauper number four. It's painful. Like just this drenched in pretension this attitude is really disgusting and frustrating and being like, yes, we are from break bills. We're classically trained, mm-hmm. you know, and and then Quentin also being like, oh, they're tweakers and telling Julia to stop slumming and you're better than this. Like this type of language and attitude is just really frustrating, but is 
really, really does correspond to our own world and, and elitist attitudes that there are, especially towards people who are systemically disadvantaged. And yeah, people like to think that they're better and look down on others who have less, which is... Yeah, really bad. And, you know, Julia does push back. She's like, magic wasn't just handed to me. This is my way of trying to get an education that I was denied. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So even as frustrating as it is, I think it's a really good thing that they put in there, especially from some of the protagonists. It can be difficult to overcome classism or elitism and things like that. Certainly, I mean, even sometimes, like, I'll find an attitude in myself. I'm like, ah, that's not good. And so, yeah, I think it it was a really important aspect to show. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing is that just because people are desperate and they don't have access to elite resources doesn't mean that their yeah their desires aren't any less valid or that the work that they do isn't as impressive or important mm-hmm. you know often in our own society we use the term hustling to refer to quasi legal or illegal ways of making money mm-hmm. but that language i think is important because they're hustling they're trying they're working hard out there doing whatever they can to make ends meet and they have to hustle in a way that a white collar job doesn't necessarily have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that that's a really important component and, and one of the most important takeaways of, of that scene, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another important takeaway is Quentin maybe punishing Julia because she doesn't like him. Mm hmm. And even if it was yeah. subconscious uh, until really then, it, yeah. well, no, he's the one who brings it up, right? Mm-hmm. That you knew how I felt about you. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then she's like, oh, so you're punishing me for that. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really, really disgusting thing to do. Totally. Be happy that they have less because they didn't have romantic feelings for you. Mm-hmm. But that does happen in the world, too. People who feel like they are owed something by the people that they are romantically or sexually interested in. And when they are denied that, being destructive with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a a form of entitlement. Absolutely. Which, I mean, I I don't think that Quentin is like an incel or anything, but you go farther along the line and and that's what you get to, right? Yeah. Well, that kind of language is often used in the most toxic incel communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So (laughs) our protagonists, (laughs) Quentin in that scene. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, they are, they are definitely flawed characters, which we will continue to see, but some of them do grow, (laughs) which is a good thing. But why don't we go into our next section, which is themes and schemes. One theme that I thought was really interesting from this episode was Fogg's narration, really, at the beginning of the episode, Mm. about how magic is about gaining power, but it also has consequences. Yeah. And that gaining that power needs to be checked by other people, and that, therefore, magic should not be done in isolation. Most things, or many things that require great deals of magic need at least two magicians working together so that they don't lose control. So they don't become an ifin as we see later on in the episode. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really interesting dynamic because 
for a show that is such an ensemble show, so much based around a group of protagonists, the fact that magic itself is dangerous in isolation, I find really fascinating. That's something I definitely want to keep an eye on as a theme throughout the show, not just in the dangers of becoming a Niffin and magic getting out of control, but in how isolation and community operate within the narrative and within these characters and how magic can be used as a metaphor for those themes. Yeah, I just find it really, really fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I was thinking about that theme too. And also, I'm <laughs> thinking about power uh, in a more our world sort of sociological way. The idea that he said that power doesn't come cheaply. Mm-hmm. It, it'll cost you something. And if, like you were saying, if you're doing the magic with more people, then maybe it would cost you less, right? Mm-hmm. If, if it costs everybody a little bit versus some a lot and some none, you know, uh, would be, yeah, just kind of an interesting idea. I don't know if they'll go into because I haven't really thought about it in terms like that, but it'll be something interesting to, to see. Yeah. I also had another, just another insight on how the narrative works in this episode. I find it really fascinating how the subplot with the book shows this intersection between serious and whimsical plot lines Hmm. where Katie stole the book in the first place because of some desperation she has and Rena's power over her. Julia has this difficulty in managing learning this magic and this kind of overwhelming urge, uh, almost addiction to it. Um, But then Quentin and Elliot just need to make sure that they can keep throwing parties at <laughs> the cottage. And need is a strong yeah, word. Exactly. But yeah, exactly. So yeah, I just I find it a really great aspect of the show that they can kind of intermingle those tones together in ways that allow for interactions, that allow for interesting plot beats, particularly for a show that this is a good example of a plot line that doesn't exist in the books. And so having it be explored in these ways, I think is just, uh, it's just really cool. It's a, a novel way of having these intersecting narratives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the character of Katie, I think is largely made up. Mm-hmm. She's based on a character called Asmodeus, but you really don't get very much with her and um she's in a completely different setting yeah and, yeah. yeah yeah so a lot of a lot of the stuff with her is yeah completely new mm-hmm. but what other themes and schemes did you have yeah the other one that was kind of interesting to me is just what marina says that you have to mean magic mm. she says there's something that just clicks when you're all in and says like the big stuff that you can do with magic, you can really only do without a safety net, which, yeah, it's just, it's kind of an interesting idea. I don't know if that at all was kind of borrowing from Harry Potter with, with some spells and meaning them or not, but I'm kind of thinking of it in kind of the art 
realm of things Hmm. where one of my sisters is an artist and she has an art business. And for a while, it took her several years where she was working full time and also doing art on the side and then did half and half. And then the, the moment where she was fully able to go over to just do her art business. Yeah, I mean, it's a scary plunge to take compared to the supposedly more stable, traditional capitalist jobs of, mm. of the workforce, right? And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just something that kind of interests me and something that I've thought about even for myself. I, I do write some poetry, but I've never done anything with it because I don't have the energy to do anything with that when I'm working and doing the podcast and, you know, trying to take care of my health and stuff. And so it, it was just that that line was kind of like, like <laughs> uh, poking me a little bit of what, what does it mean to be all in and and how potentially scary that can be to, to not have the safety net. But can you create more amazing things or, or beautiful things or whatever it is if you are? Yeah. Yeah. And for that to really highlight Julia's conflict in this episode of Mm -hmm. feeling vulnerable in so many ways in her life, yet also being so driven to be involved with magic and that drive changing so much of her life and affecting her relationships with James and with Quentin. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a really interesting perspective I hadn't thought of, but uh, a fascinating Well, and theme. there's the fear of failing at it, right? If you go all in and then you can't make anything more out of mm. it, then, or in Julia's case, maybe she'd be like, maybe there's a cap to how much I can learn or how much I can progress my skill because they didn't accept me at break bills. You know, maybe I'm just not good enough to do this and... Yeah, I was kind of feeling Julia there. (laughs) Yeah. But why don't we go into our last section, which is from another point of view. What character's perspective were you really sitting with in this episode? Well, one mini one I have really quick is just drunk Alice trying to flirt and being really (laughs) bad at it. Yes. Because uh, I get that. Yeah, I was going to say, did you relate? Yeah, as I've discussed previously on the podcast, uh, I have some certainly not fond, but very powerful memories of <laughs> failing to flirt with people. Um, and alcohol does not help. Uh, so, yeah, I, I get you there, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to spend more time talking about Penny. Because I think... Why would you not? I mean, absolutely. And <laughs> Especially when he looks that good. <laughs> I think it's it's a great Penny episode because he does spend most of it alone. We've seen a lot of Penny and Katie in the series. And obviously a bit of Penny and Quentin. But most of this episode, he's talking with people outside of the main cast. And in so doing, he is learning more about his own abilities and engaging with them in new ways. First, in the psychic house, having to think about what it means to be a psychic and already feeling disconnected from the other people there for their ways of thinking about the abilities that are just so different from his experiences. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to have such a disconnected character that's psychic because psychic abilities connect you mm-hmm. inherently. 
Absolutely. And then for him to travel for the first time. Yeah. On accident, I can just imagine how upsetting it would be to then have another power that he can't control. Mm-hmm. For him to need to call Fog and Professor Sunderland to come and get him mm-hmm. because of this. And for Penny, someone who wants to go it alone in any way that he can, to have to call for help because of something that he did but he didn't, didn't control, I can just imagine being a really difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then to be met with them telling him that he's a traveler and then laughing at him. About him maybe traveling into a volcano. Yeah. And you might die. (laughs) Just, I can, I really feel for Penny there. You know, he is such a brusque character. And the kind of character that I don't often immediately align with. Mm -hmm. But even in these short scenes, which are not part of the main narratives in this episode, we're really getting a lot of his characterization. And yeah, I'm just kind of feeling for him a lot as he is having a very different experience from most of his peers where even Quentin is frustrated because he doesn't have a discipline but he's at least getting community Mm -hmm. and Penny has two disciplines in a way (laughs) both of which further isolate him further frustrate him for are further things that he can't control and he has to learn how to that no one else, or certainly no one else he's close to, has to do the same way. Yeah, that's so true, because he's put into a community of, of psychics with now where he's living and his mm-hmm. discipline. And it's not that he feels connected with any of them, I think. But now he's even further disconnected from a community that he's supposed to connect with, you know, uh, because they're not travelers and so yeah it's just there's so much distance between him and others and i think he both likes and dislikes that yeah also i don't think education is ever a place where just like yay have fun party whatever like no learn (laughs) because this is what you're here for especially if you're paying money for it uh but even if you're not like other people would love that opportunity and don't get it right Mm. and so you have the privilege use it learn but while other people can maybe be enjoying themselves more and doing this, it's like, no, you need to study or you might die. Mm-hmm. I mean, any of them, I guess a spell could go wrong. They could die that way or whatnot. But like he very easily, yeah, could travel into a volcano. He could travel in the middle of a war zone or onto a planet that doesn't have oxygen to breathe. <laughs> like yeah. it's scary. So yeah, he, he has to to be serious about his studies in a way that other people can party or have fun or whatever. And then he doesn't have that luxury. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Penny. (laughs) I don't think he really gets your best boy hashtag. Oh, no, not at all. But he probably should have one. We'll have to think about it. Yeah. We'll we'll let it come come out organically. (laughs) What perspective did you want to talk about? to talk about Quentin actually mm. uh, not not in his particularly annoying moments <laughs> in this uh, episode with his elitism and his sexism but 
when he and Alice are doing that little match spell to locate where Charlie was when he died and Alice is mentioning about this fountain and how people have killed themselves in it and Quentin says you don't think that your brother you know Mm. and basically asking if Charlie could have killed himself in that bottomless fountain and she said he wasn't that kind of guy he was just the kind of guy who always wanted to fix things for everyone around him he was really really good and I was just thinking about what it would feel like to be Quentin to hear that like what kind of guy what what is the kind of guy that kills himself Mm. you know and and this totally happens in society like people just think really ignorant comments sometimes about things that they don't understand so i was thinking about him being like what 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 is that kind of guy like am i that kind of guy what what does that mean Mm. uh why then did she say that he was the type of person who wanted to fix things for those around him it's not those aren't mutually exclusive things yeah. uh, as both of us know we've had suicidal ideation and we also would love to fix things for people around us as much as we can you know and and sometimes that can contribute to the depression absolutely right? yeah that's what my thought was in this mm-hmm. moment was feeling like you are failing to fix things for other people is something that has absolutely contributed to my ideation at mm-hmm. times. So, yeah, that felt very much like an ignorant comment. Yeah. And you're so right to to think about how that would impact Quentin. Yeah, and and why did she say he was really really good if she knew that I've wanted to kill myself? What would she think of me? Yeah. Would that make him want to disclose part of his own self you know his own depression his own way that he has thought the way he struggled in his life you know just just not talk about it we know that he told Elliot but I don't think anyone else knows and after hearing something like that I I would think that most people would be even less inclined to talk about it Mm because you'd feel like you're going to be put into a category with whatever type of guy that is. Yeah. And, and if you're not good, are you bad? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, it, it, is that what that means? And yeah, it, it was a really sad kind of point of view to be thinking about. And there was a very specific time when I was auditing a class with one of my previous professors that I loved and I was I had already graduated and everything and he was just letting me sit in on a new class that I was never able to take because it wasn't offered and the person I was dating at the time one of their parents had killed themselves Mm. and one class period because I was loving this stuff so much and everything I was like oh you can come along if you want my professor's totally cool with it and she did and that was great and everything and i think it was the session or two after that in class that somebody brought up the question of of suicide and uh theology which it's like okay this is a class like it's fine to bring up those types of questions that you have especially when religious institutions have made proclamations about such things yeah. and and really potentially damaging ways and and so not not to say that someone shouldn't ask the question but 
I was like, if my partner at the time had been there, I'm just like, yeah, you have to be very careful about how you talk about things like this because these things are deeply personal and deeply painful and yeah, can be completely ostracizing, can be triggering, can be so many things. And, and so I was just really feeling for Quentin in that moment that this is something that he struggled with significantly and not just throughout his life, but very recently, right before he got to break bills too. And then to hear something that's so ignorant and, and not thoughtful about it would just be isolating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which then, yeah, kind of going back to our last episode, does make me think that it was a really big deal that Quentin did tell Elliot. Yeah, agreed. I mean, yeah, the, those are hard things to tell people most of the time. Yeah. And again, it's one of the really refreshing things about this show mm-hmm. is that this is our protagonist and these are the kinds of situations that are being that he's going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I may have brought us down, but to close out the episode, when we talk about the title, maybe that'll lift us back up. <laughs> sure. What do you think of Consequences of Advanced Spellcasting? I wish it was Consequences of Advanced Magic. Yes, it's a mouthful. It's not just it's a mouthful, but I think that... For me, you know, obviously my POV, Penny is also dealing with the consequences of Mm -hmm. his magic, but he's not casting spells. The point is that it's beyond his control. And I think that if his experience here is meant to be part of that thematic title, he's kind of being left out there. I guess it makes sense because the last two titles have both had magic in it, and maybe they didn't want to keep using Mm -hmm. magic in each title, but... Yeah, I think that that's my main issue with it. But the subject, I think, makes sense for this episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't hate it, but it does seem like a bit wordy. And yeah, the, your your point is great about there's more to it than just spells specifically. Mm-hmm. And then I, I always like the, the more uh, glib side, something more like the consequences of advanced magic colon death or something <laughs> like you know because the show doesn't take itself very seriously but mm. also deals with serious things so that would amuse me more <laughs> <laughs> yeah true and i think it would help me remember what was in it mm. rather than because i'm just like oh advanced magic okay you know like yeah. what what does that entail but or i mean it could be something simpler like magic can murder you mm-hmm. yeah yeah. We'll just always go back to Elliot lines. <laughs> I think that was Elliot. It was Elliot or Marco, but I think it was Elliot. <laughs> okay, well, that's going to wrap up this week's discussion. What are we discussing next time on The Magicians? So we will be discussing episode four, The World in the Walls, where we get a glimpse into the mind of Quentin Coldwater. Little disclaimer here, if you are concerned about how the portrayal of a certain community is done in this episode, we will discuss it. So don't, uh, uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> don't think that we are fully condone everything and how everything is portrayed in this next episode. 
but also maybe try to think about it in terms of how certain characters may see themselves or others in a community without giving too much away. (laughs) Okay, well, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.